Okay, welcome back to my channel, Maybe Between the Pages. My name is Taylor, and today we have another wonderful episode of Page Chewing. I am joined, of course, by my co-host, uh, P.L. Stewart. Uh, Steve can't be with us today. He um, has, you know, work calls. But <laughs> our lovely guest today is none other but Tessa Gratton, who is a New York Times best-selling author uh, for many, many different works, both in YA and adult, and we're delighted to have her. Um, if you wouldn't mind, though, just giving those watching a little bit of a self-introduction of who you are and how you found yourself where you are in the industry today. Sure. I am Tessa Gratton. I am the author of predominantly young adult fantasy novels, but I've also written several adult fantasy novels, which is what I grew up reading and loving the most. Um, my books have been translated into 22 different languages, and uh, my debut came out in 2011. So I've been doing this professionally for just over a decade and full-time for about 10 years. Um, I live in Kansas on the edge of the prairie with my wife and some really weird cats. But I grew up living all over the world because my father was in the U.S. Navy. And so I, we were stationed in all kinds of places, including Japan. Um, uh, yeah, I love all things magic. When I was little, I wanted to be a wizard more than anything else. And I've been kind of chasing that my whole life. And writing stories is the closest I've come to creating magic. I love that because that, stories are magic, you know, it's, yeah, it's how can we be. can create, yeah. it's how we can create that in the mundane, right? Mm -hmm. So just hearing from your introduction there, I'm sure there's a lot of things that have inspired your works, you know, over the years. But one thing that strikes me is the breadth of what you've done in all of the different genres and all of the different inspirations that you've had, you know, from Shakespeare to Star Wars to you name it. <laughs> and I'm wondering if when you approach a story, is there a way, a different way that you approach a story knowing it's going to be in a specific genre or age group? So you mentioned both YA and adult. You grew up reading adult when you were young. I think a lot of us got away with reading books we shouldn't have been reading <laughs> when we were younger. Yeah. Uh, but I'm wondering when you approach a story, do you approach it from the genre or the age group that you're going for? Or does it naturally just kind of develop into one of those, what's the word I'm looking for, categories on its own? Sure. Uh, the On a basic level, every story that I want to write, when an idea grows enough that I think it's a viable idea, it's something where, okay, I know I can make a whole book out of this idea. That usually comes with the category, the age category. Like I know at that point, am I aiming for a young adult audience or am I aiming for an adult audience with this? Like what does the idea call for? What audience um, am I really interested in asking questions to, like directed at? Um, but that said, when I first started trying to be a published writer, I specifically focused on young adult ideas and teenage ideas because uh, that's why I wanted to be a published writer, was to write stories for uh, teenagers and young adults. I was actually going to school uh, for, for politics 
Um, I was in graduate school. I fully intended to become like a feminist lobbyist, um, like really deep into uh, um, intersectional feminism and lobbying and how to make structural change in America specifically. And um, I was in graduate school in 2004, 2005. It was the um, like kind of the height of the Iraq war. And uh, George W. Bush was elected again. And my dad was in the, uh, the province of Iraq serving with the Marines uh, that had the highest um, death rate for the US service members. Um, and I was in a really fraught place and was getting just angrier and angrier. And I realized that the path I was on was actually just turning me into a, a like a, an angry and maybe even like kind of aggressive bad person. I only fought, I only argued. I didn't really know how to create relationships that would actually lead to change. And um, I quit graduate school <laughs> and thought to myself, okay, what was my actual goal here? That was making the world better. That's what I'd wanted to do uh, for at least 10 years. I knew that's what I wanted to do was make the world a more equitable, just place. And how could I do that if not politics? Like that's how you're supposed to do that, right? And I thought to myself, okay, well, what made me realize that the world needed people to fight for justice? What made me want to make the world better? And the real answer was the way I was raised, which of course I can't give to everyone. And then also the books I read when I was like 10 to 15 years old. And so I thought, oh, well, I've always loved writing I've always been a writer, but what if I could pivot and do that as my my calling, my my work and write books that can help other 10 to 15 year olds realize that the world is in danger and we need to be fighting things like uh, transphobia and structural racism and all these things. How can I tell stories and write them? And so I got into this job intending to write for a young adult audience first. Like that is what I was here for. And my first six or seven books were YA books before I was like, okay, you can have a break and you can write a fun adult, sexy Shakespeare retelling. <laughs> Allow it, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> You've earned it a little bit. <laughs> Oh, I love that. I love that origin story and how, you know, I feel like it's a writing is almost a calling. A lot of people talk about it as that. And it's really interesting to hear how you came to the space that you're in now. And uh, something that also really strikes me with the work that you do is almost all of it is either queer normative or mm, queer normative adjacent or talks about those issues, right? So I think that when when you come to your works with that in mind, it definitely comes through the page. I think you're very successful in getting that through to the audience. 
Thank you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, and I think uh, for someone like Taylor who knows me, I'm still kind of giddy because this is a huge fanboy moment for me. I think Tessa knows that I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of your work. Um, you can forgive me for a minute while I, I do some cover flashing yes. because the covers are gorgeous. <laughs> right? The covers are gorgeous. The Innis Lear, Queens of Innis Lear duology, Queens of Innis Lear, and of course, Lady Hotspur. These are, yep. these are gorgeous covers and fantastic books. Um, if you indulge me, Tessa, why Shakespeare? Why a Shakespeare retelling? Um, what 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 led you to, to to write this duology? So I ultimately wrote the Queens of Venice Lear because I think the play Shakespeare's play King Lear sucks. Um, it is considered to be like his his ultimate work. It was one of the last plays he wrote. And basically for 400 years, uh, that, not that long, there was about 100 years where people forgot about King Lear. But in general, <laughs> um, it is really touted as like the ultimate in theatrical writing. And it is a um, like, you're not a successful uh, old white man in acting if you haven't played King Lear. Like it is the ultimate thing to play. And so many of the lines are famous and the storm, like it's just very iconic. And wow, I read it when I was 17 or 18 and I was really upset about it because I had read a bunch of Shakespeare plays before that and seen a bunch of them and performed in some of them. And I really felt like Shakespeare kind of had my back because he wrote really complicated, marginalized characters, openly marginalized characters. And I was just like, wow, even though there's a lot of like problematic things, of course, um, there was someone writing who at least gave space to the pain of marginalized characters. Um, women, and there's a lot of queerness, uh, very overt in Shakespeare, um, and non-white cultures. Um, I mean, just surpr a surprising amount. And then I read King Lear, and every single character, except for King Lear and the fool, is like two-dimensional. The women are the most two-dimensional, flat-out evil women that he wrote in the 40 years of writing before that. Um, I was just stunned and horrified. And I was like, wow, F you, Shakespeare. <laughs> um, and it took, so that was when I was 17. And I thought every once in a while, I should really write, I should write a YA King Lear. I should fix this. I should do this better because Elia, not Elia, um, that's my character's name, Cordelia, the youngest of Lear's daughters, is just really shafted in particular. Um, and her, she only exists to further Lear's character arc. And um, I just, I came back to it every once in a while and was like, it's Cordelia and um, 
Edmund the Bastard. These are the two most interesting characters. And uh, I, I got to do this. And every once in a while, I would sort of like chew on the idea and realize it just wasn't there yet. I didn't ultimately understand why I should care about Cordelia in particular. And um, then in 2014, um, I had a book series canceled by my publisher. It was during the Penguin Random House merger when Random House bought Penguin. And I was at Random House at the time in the middle of a trilogy called The United States of Asgard, which is in print now because I got the rights back and self-published it. So um, you can go read it anywhere that books are sold. <laughs> um, but I really had been treated very well by Random House children's books where they published my first two novels and then this trilogy and the, the third book in the trilogy was done and I thought that we were getting on a phone call to talk about what my next books were going to be and instead the phone call was actually we're not going to publish this book at all anymore and this is something that happens to authors all the time unfortunately it is very like business as usual for publishing but I was crushed and betrayed because it seemed like it came out of nowhere to me. And I felt like I'd given everything. I'd done everything right. And then it still wasn't going to happen. I was betrayed. And it was maybe like, I don't know, six or seven weeks after this conversation. And for whatever reason, I King Lear came back up and I thought to myself, oh, 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 I understand Cordelia. I actually have a window into her emotional reality now. And as soon as I realized that, like this whole book just kind of unfurled itself in my imagination. And so that's why King Lear and Shakespeare, I decided to write the story that I wanted King Lear to be, where every character was three-dimensional and mostly selfish and bad. Like, I didn't want to make everybody good. They are, act most of them are still bad guys, but um, I was really invested in exploring how that could happen to a family and a kingdom and like the relationship between like like structural power the ruling class and their emotional like family issues also like everything that i've always been invested in and it turned into this huge sprawling epic fantasy novel yeah yeah. One that is, may I say, absolutely brilliant. Um, Thank you. You know, certainly in my top 50 um, books, both of them of all time, and certainly my top duology <laughs> ever, I guess, of course, you know, um, duologies now, I think they're a bit, I mean, there was a time when uh, if I looked through a lot of the fantasy titles, there were very few duologies. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's so pervasive now, but, you yeah. know, there are more than before, and this is just uh, fantastic. So, yeah. Um, so, so a question, um, Tessa, so with, you know, one thing I, I love about your series is obviously, you know, the gender inversion and, you know, own voices, you, you inject that feeling of magic and mystery that I think Shakespeare was trying to capture. 
you have all these unique characters and you know you still have you know you draw us into this world of your prophecy and divine loyalties and destiny but the one thing that i will say and, and this is you know again this is only a compliment is that your prose wow it is so lush it's so evocative it's got i did i can only describe it as dreamy and so when you think of um shakespeare um obviously we're talking about you know we have to keep in mind the, in the context of the time that he wrote in mm -hmm. but i mean your prose is just it's so suits for me something that that is inspired by by shakespeare's uh plays so what was that a conscious effort to make the prose somewhat elevated um because it was shakespeare was that something that you were striving for um i really appreciate you using the word elevated um <laughs> pl is a prose snob so that is a huge <laughs> huge compliment <laughs> so i i really appreciate that i tried very hard to feel the way to feel about the way that I wrote the Queens of Inneslier, the way I feel when I read and recite my favorite Shakespeare um, lines and soliloquies. I think that Shakespeare was uh, like a linguistic genius. And I think that he mostly was just writing the way that he thought and the way that his imagination worked and that he was a poet above all. And he brought this like sense, uh, like, you know, he basically invented it, like a shocking number of words in the English language. It's, I, I think, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm just going to make this up, but I feel like I read at some point that it's like something like 10% of the English language can be traced to either directly to a word that he used for the first time in his plays, or he invented a word. And then because English is a very um, improvisational language, we did the same thing to other words that he did for the first time. And so when I think about Shakespeare's writing, I think of um, rhythm and playfulness. Those are the, the key words that I have um, with everything I love. And, you know, even his most tragic, beautiful soliloquies are still playful. And that's what I tried to keep in mind um, when I was writing. And to be honest, I let myself indulge myself. And I usually try not to do that because I'm a long writer and an overwriter. And so I struggle to keep even YA books under 100,000 words um, because I just like to live in playful poetry. Um, but when I was writing in the Queens of Venice Lear, I was like, you know what? This is your chance. Just go for it. And so uh, it's a very indulgent in a lot of ways um, book for me because I didn't I didn't hold myself back very much, even in a few places where arguably I should have. When you say that you 
wanted to it to have the same cadence and the playfulness. Mm -hmm. Did you find that you were reading, like reading back to yourself out loud was an important part of that process? Because I find that if I say something out loud, it's, it hits different than if you mm -hmm. read it. Yes, definitely. Um, and I read it out loud differently. I try to read as much of all of my books as possible out loud when I get to like the line edit and copy edit level, um, that's the best place to figure out, oh, I really need a comma here or an indication of this is where you would take a break if you were telling the story. Um, with the Queens of Venice Lear in particular, um, I let myself get into a more performative space. I spent a lot of, of my high, my high school, I was a, I was a theater nerd. Um, and so in, I, I actively tried to be in that theater nerd space when I was reading Queens of Venice Lear to myself, especially I tried really hard with the dialogue in particular. Um, and then some of the longer, more dreamy descriptions. Um, yeah, that broke down a little bit with Lady Hotspur just because of the timeline and things that were going on in my life. I didn't have as much time to work on it. And so... Yeah. I wish I, I wish I could have a year now to like revise Lady Hotspur just for the things that I got to do with Queens that I didn't get to do with Hotspur. And that's just a publishing reality, unfortunately. No, absolutely. Yeah. Did you feel any um, pressure, conscious or subconscious, you think, Tessa, because obviously it's a retelling of this incredibly iconic writer that you know the entire world knows um so now you're you're doing this retelling um you know and again very inventive especially with with the characters and and the gendered version but did you feel the pressure because after all this is shakespeare that's inspiring you and you're writing you're rewriting uh one of two of you know essentially more than two uh, mm -hmm. three three and a half of his yeah. his play his plays um so I would have answered this question differently two years ago. I would have said, yes, I felt some pressure. Um, but now that I've written three and I'm working on my fourth Star Wars, I got to say, I feel way more pressure writing Star Wars novels than I did uh with the Shakespeare. And on one hand, I think that's because Shakespeare is constantly adapted. You know, there have been, you know, five King Lear adaptations big enough that I've seen them in the last 15 years. And then people are doing Shakespeare, like King Lear constantly every year and interpreting it and reinterpreting it. And so I think that there's an expectation with Shakespeare that it will be adapted and it will be changed and we will find new ways to explore these stories and these characters. Um, so I, I, I put pressure on myself when I was working on them, but I don't actually think there was very much external pressure. And certainly the people who directly engaged with me about Queens and Hotspur were very um, 
open about wanting to engage with my interpretation. And it wasn't, there was not really no pushback about it. Um, yeah. So, and then now that I work for Star Wars, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a really active legacy that people have a lot of strong opinions about. And I'm working with characters who are, who were created, um, you know, by my peers in the last four years, as opposed to 400 years ago. And so uh, that's where the real pressure lies, I think. Um with creating essentially new canon as opposed to an adaptation of something where there's arguably no such thing as canon when it comes to Shakespeare, because he even had, there were, you know, the, the folios and all the different things and the plays we have where somebody wrote them down at some point, but we don't actually know how accurate they are to the words that were performed on the stage the first time or the last time, like all that kind of stuff. So Shakespeare was always dynamic. That's a, it's a really important point. I think too, is also the, the relevancy of the time today, mm -hmm. right? So Star Wars, like you said, is very much, it's dynamic, but in a different way, it's dynamic yes. as in it's still growing and still being mm -hmm. created. Whereas Shakespeare is dynamic in almost a retroactive form. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really good point that you make. And I'm sure that there's both joy and <laughs> frustration. Let's use the word frustration yeah. <laughs> with um, the fandoms of today, especially with um, the on, you know, I think the internet has also really developed mm -hmm. uh, fandoms to be juggernauts and yes. uh, they will, they will make their thoughts known. Yes. The Star Wars readers have all been completely fantastic. I will say like all every time I've brushed against um, less pleasant Star Wars fandom areas, they're not readers. It's not about the books. Um, it's and, and so that is nice. Like the particularly I work I work on the High Republic era and I've never seen anything with the High Republic readers and fans other than just like joy and excitement and um, really uh, like invested critique. I don't like where they're like, oh, we really want this to be good. Let's talk about how we wish it had been better. Like that is the angle of the kind of critique. So yeah. I, I'm happy in the books area. I know there are a lot of Star Wars writers that would love to move into other media, and that is, I'm not one of them. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, uh, of course, um, we should probably talk a little bit about Star Wars because sure. Quest for Planet X is a New York Times bestseller. Congratulations. Thank so, you. Why Star Wars in particular? Out of all of the, you know, I mean, we have in terms of uh, science fiction universes, you know, there's so many. What attracted you to Star Wars? Oh, gosh. Well, I um, don't remember a time in my life that Star Wars wasn't a part of my life. My parents are huge Star Wars fans. Um, I was born right after or right before The Empire Strikes Back came out. Um, and but my parents loved A New Hope. And 
one of my earliest memories, I was like three or four, was going to the drive-through and mom and dad were watching Return of the Jedi. And I was in the back of the van playing with my little brother because we didn't care. So we were just, you know, playing with our toys. And I looked up for whatever reason and I was like, are those teddy bears? I think those are teddy bears. And like crawled up to the front and ignored my little brother because I was obsessed with the Ewoks. Um, I, I thought they were teddy bears. Um, and so like that is one of my most formative memories was becoming actually obsessed with Wicket. And I dressed up like him. I had like Ewok pajamas. There were probably teddy bear pajamas that my mom told me were Ewok pajamas. So it was like my first cosplay when I was four. I stopped answering to my name and only answered to Wicket. Um, like, you know, those kind of preschool shenanigans. Um, and as I got older, I gravitated toward Princess Leia because she had incredibly beautiful hair. Um, I will admit it was definitely a shallow uh, initial attraction, <laughs> um, Carrie Fisher's face and her hair. Um, but I really learned a lot about um, myself from Princess Leia and how she led and what she wanted and how she built relationships while still fighting for justice. Um, and so in a lot of ways, I never chose Star Wars because it was just always there and always a part of my family life and things that taught me about fantasy. Um, even though there's spaceships and stuff, Star Wars, the original trilogy in particular, is a fantasy a trilogy. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that on, on one hand is the answer. And on the other hand, um, when it comes to actually writing professionally for these kind of big IPs, for the most part, they choose you. Authors don't have enough power in general to be like, yes, I would like to write a Star War. May I have one, please? <laughs> That's unfortunately not how it works. Um, and I got to, um, to do this because of my very good friend and co-writer, Justina Ireland. We've been friends um, for like eight years now. And she was one of the initial writers creating the High Republic. Um, and she, uh, it, it's because of her that I got my invitation. She knew I loved Star Wars. We'd written bef together before and, you know, beta read for each other. And uh, she trusted me, uh, for which I'll always be happy and grateful to co-write a book with her. And so that is how it happened for me was um, relationships and like having, you know, I'd been a writer for 10 years already. So I had a good backlist. Um, so, yeah. That's incredible. What is it like to um, co-author a book with another writer? You know, as a writer myself, we've heard all kinds of stories, you know, these collaborations, these partnerships, um, you know, sometimes they work fantastic. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, there's there's issues. Mm -hmm. um, but regardless, so Chaos and Flame, that, that's, I guess, the best known collaboration mm -hmm. you have with Justina. And also, can you tell us a bit about it while you're at it? But what's it like to do the the collaboration, the, the collaboration? Sure. Um, it, it's different. You know, I've talked to a lot of different uh, co-authors now. 
Um, and it's different for everyone. For Justina and I, it really happened because uh, we talk about writing constantly. We're always talking to each other about what we're working on and being like, oh, I, I can't figure out this character arc or, um, you know, like I'll read one of her books early and give her feedback and vice versa. Excuse me. And we also knew that we have similar taste in YA in particular, like what we want from YA and the kind of fun we want to have in YA um, was really the, the main reason we decided to work on this together. Justina and I both read our individual novels um, are always grappling with hard issues. Um, you know, I really am looking at uh, things like choice and, you know, uh, gender, uh, gender trouble <laughs> um, and uh, structural transphobia and that kind of stuff and trying to deal with that. And Justina writes about historical racism and modern racism. And, um, you know, so our our individual books are really hard to write. Um, we're trying to make a difference. We're trying to challenge readers and also invite them in and have a good time. And it can be a very fraught process. And so we hit this point where I'm Justina is the one who was like, we really should just write a fun book. Can we just write a book? That's not hard. It's not about anything except fun. And, you know, we'll, I will put some dragons in it and kissing and whatever will be great. And I was like, that sounds so nice. Um, and we talked about that for a while, uh, just like knocking ideas around and trying to put things together. And we kept ruining our ideas with um, like real world issues. And we were like, oh no, we can't do that one. That That's too important. <laughs> that's going to be hard emotionally to write. We need to get back to something fun and that's it. Uh, and Justina called me one day. It was January of 2020. And she is good. She says, I, I, you're gonna make fun of me for this, but I know what book we have to write because I had a dream about it. And I said, just like Stephanie Meyer, it's a sign. Because <laughs> Stephanie Meyer notoriously had a dream about what became Twilight. Um, and so we went on a retreat together and uh, like just banged out an outline. We were just having a great time. It was silly. And then about eight days after that retreat, the lockdown happened for uh, COVID. And we were just like, oh no, well now we have to write this book because everything is terrible. The world is terrible. We can't write anything serious because we're all in like existential agony every day. And so we started writing Chaos and Flame, uh, which is a, a like a really fun and ferocious YA enemies to lovers fantasy about an assassin from House Kraken uh, who is intent on revenge against House Dragon because House Dragon massacred her original house and made her a an orphan. 
And um, that is Darling. And then Talon is the other main character. And he is the war prince of House Dragon. And he really is tired of war. Um, and he meets Darling and they fight. But Talon recognizes her because his older brother, who is the high prince regent, has been painting pictures of Darling since he was about eight years old. Um, and they just thought it was, you know, that that Caspian, the older brother, was, was mad. That prophecy had driven him mad, but actually this is a real person. And so Talon kidnaps Darling instead of killing her. And uh, they go, it's political shenanigans ensue and lots of fighting and kissing and monsters and all of the really fun stuff. It's a super fun book, I promise. Um, it's not about anything serious except for you know, war and the consequences of war. Uh, well, oh, this, oh, I didn't even answer your question, but. Uh. <laughs> no, I think you did. I think you did. Okay, good. The idea of co-writing with someone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And something that, that really struck me just from that story there and, and just what you've talked about thus far is that there's kind of two ways to approach taking on uh real world issues there mm -hmm. is the queer normative route just if we're talking about lgbt mm -hmm. qia plus issues but in any issue really but there's the normative route where you you have the power to in your story create a world where something is not an issue and explore what that would be like and then there's also the approach that i know pl takes as well in his work where he uh, attacks it head on and says mm -hmm. this is an issue and we need to discuss it as the issue that it is. So I'm curious for you, when you're deciding which approach to take with which issues in your stories, is there something like a guiding factor to know which way you'd like to approach a certain issue in your work? I mostly write secondary world fantasies. And so when I'm doing that, I get to create a world from the ground up. And I feel that it's very important to show readers that it's possible to have a world where it is not fraught to be gay, or there are all kinds of different possibilities for genders. You can have a world where they've always believed there are seven genders normally, or, you know, like, so right now, I always lean toward some kind of normativity when I'm doing world building. Um, I think that that is, it's something that I can do. And a lot of writers aren't like their mission is different. And so I feel like because it's something I can do and something I believe in, that's a really good, important space for me to occupy because I can still tell stories that are, uh, you know, full of conflict and about being queer or genderqueer, but it starts from a different place on the like political spectrum. And I do feel like in some ways, because I can do that, I have to do that. Um, and, you know, sexual queerness and gender queerness are very different, like they're related, obviously. Um, but, you know, 
it has been very interesting. Um, my book, Nightshine, that came out in 2020, I think. Um, <laughs> that sounds right. What um, even is time? Right, right. right. <laughs> um, so that book, I specifically wanted to build a world where magic was non-binary. And um, like the, you know, the, the most powerful people were the people who could access non-binary liminal spaces, not just um, when it comes to gender or sexuality, but also, you know, night and day and life and death. Like, so there are a lot of metaphorical ways you can um, introduce the idea of non-binaryness. Um, and so in that world, because I knew that was going to be my focus, that sexuality is very, uh, like queerness, queer sexuality is very normative. Nobody cares if you're gay or bi or pan or ace or lesbian or any of those things. What they care about is the gender you present, is that duality. You know, they care about um, if you're a witch or a priest. They care if you're a, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. Uh, they care if you're alive or dead. Like literally spirits are alive and demons are dead. Like, so I built a lot of dualities into it, but um, in order to make that more pointed, it was better to make sexuality a spectrum um, to point out like that kind of thing. So on a certain level, it really depends on what the main point and main conflict of the story is and who the characters are. Um, so I, I think it's two layered. Like ideally I'm looking at creating a, a normative world because I think that blows people's minds still. Like so many people can't even imagine either because their imagination has been quashed by our culture or because they're in so much pain, like, you know, a, a 14 or 15 year old who is afraid and in danger, I like being able to present them with a fantasy world where if they are who they are, they wouldn't be in danger. Like, you know, they can access all these different things and be welcomed and embraced um, because of what they want, not because of who they are. So I'm pretty invested in that. And then secondarily, it depends on the story. Absolutely. Do you find, Tessa, that, and it's fascinating to hear you talk about um, the desire to, hey, you know what, written these heavy books, time to write something light and fanciful and, and, and funny and just, you know, um, I know that for me, one thing that I've, I've struggled with as an author is, um, you know, as Taylor mentioned, I tend to tackle some heavy themes in my books. Um, there's always that point where I wonder, and if someone may may love and really enjoy my book, that uh, they may appreciate the themes, but that's not what they're reading for. They're reading it for the world building mm -hmm. and the battle scenes, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And that's great. Uh, but at the same time, sometimes perhaps, it's not that the themes are necessarily lost on them, but that's not their focus. And then, of course, for some people, and every reader is different, and, and mm -hmm. reading is a very subjective thing, for some people, that is the focus. That is why they re read 
my books. Do you find that when it comes to books that are heavier in themes that you've written, that it is there is sometimes a tendency to perhaps uh, for some readers to you know kind of not necessarily overlook but gloss over the themes and look for the entertainment value and or vice versa to really hone in on those themes and then and how do you feel about well you know what I I, I think it's okay because I, you know even if someone doesn't necessarily uh, hone in on those themes they're still enjoying my book like how do you feel about that that kind of dichotomy. Um, I, on one hand, really, I mean, I write books because I want to explore themes with really, um, like dynamic characters. And, um, so I do really want readers to like my ideal reader, at least understands the questions that I'm asking and gets that the knives I'm, you know, stabbing them with are, uh, are theme knives. <laughs> but I also, um, you know, when I read a book, I have to be enjoying myself or I won't get to the end. And so I really try to, um, I, I guess I, my, my heaviest thematic works, um, have been my least read works in a lot of ways, not, not the, um, the adult books, but when it comes to YA, the harder I have pushed on, um, on theme in, you know, and in the world building and everything, I think the less good I am at communicating a good story. And that is, that's something I'm working on as a writer. Like I'm trying to get better at it. I'm trying to find ways to communicate what I'm doing in a way that readers respond to and really want to keep turning the pages. Um, and so, I really want both. I want readers to um, enjoy the excitement. And, you know, that's, an, you know, fantasy isn't fantasy if you don't have like battles or dragons or some kind of like magical murder or whatever. Like we have all these tropes and I would like to learn to use those tropes more effectively to tell stories where 20% of it is like, okay, but did you get the did you get the point? <laughs> you know, um, I hope you feel a lot of things. I do think that I was more successful with that in my in Queens of Lear and Lady Hotspur, partly because I I am a long writer and I have the space in adult, like the literal word count space in adult to take my time building the kind of conflict and theme and relationships to get to that point um, while also doing, you know, big plot and exciting adventure and, you know, awful magic and all these kind of things. There's room for 10 different layers in the kind of adult fantasy that I've written that for a lot of real reasons, you just can't tell stories that way in YA. Um, which is not 
a criticism of YA. It's just a difference, a different in a difference in tropes and you know category requirements and what kids are looking for and what they want and the kind of books that librarians and teachers and parents can most easily give to their kids. Um, so I'm, I, you know, I really love YA and am trying to find how to balance that better, like how to, you know, oh, well, I only get three layers instead of eight. So how do I, you know, pick um, what layers I'm going to weave in and how and prioritize fun communication without losing the thread of. That's one of the reasons I really love working with Justina is because I think that she nails that in uh, Dread Nation and Deathless Divide. Um, those books are just like rip-roaring adventures when you start them can't put them down. The voice is amazing. Things are constantly happening, but you cannot look away from what those books are about. Um, and she's just so good at that. And so that's one of those things I really want to like glean from her <laughs> um, to make my individual books better. Yeah. I think it, you know, it's very important to to talk about the different delivery as well, you know, in YA mm -hmm. and adult, because as someone who is now, you know, I'm 30, so I have officially aged out of what who <laughs> YA is written for. But uh, I find that as an adult, I still enjoy it, but I have to go in knowing it's not written for me anymore, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. So, um I'm actually, you know, pregnancy brain is a real thing. So I'm having some issues with adult fantasy right now with all of those layers we just discussed. So I'm actually mm -hmm. revisiting some some older YA books at the moment. But I'm having to remind myself that when I'm annoyed that where are the parents in this story? It's like <laughs> they're not supposed to be there, right? Yeah. So I, it, it's even as a reader, it's a very interesting experience to go into those mm -hmm. two different age groups. And it's just fascinating to hear as a writer that you also have to kind of think through that, you know, mm -hmm. and get in the right headspace for it. Because as a reader, I, I have to as well. I have to kind of yeah. reset a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just, this may sound like an odd question, but um, I can imagine you're probably extremely well read. Um, you know, you can't read everything. I know I certainly can't. Um, you know, I'm I'm just I'm just so enraptured by the depth and breadth of writing today and in, in, in 2023 and mm -hmm. all the different genres and subgenres and things you can read. Um, you know, things uh as you're talking about, especially in, in the in the queer space. Um, you know, what do you feel if there's anything we're missing or there should be more of in literature, spectral fiction specifically right now. What are wh where is there an absence? Where is there a dearth of something that we should be reading more of, seeing more of? Like what's what's missing? Especially keep in mind that you know right now we have places, for example, United States, where you know the schools where books are being banned, unfortunately, mm -hmm. which is which is sad. I don't want to get to the whole political aspect there, but but what are, what are we what what are we missing right now? What what should what would you like to see more of? More authors write more of. Oh gosh, you know, I 
have never not been able to find what I'm looking for. If I want something, I can ask a couple of friends or I can ask Twitter and I'll get, you know, 20 uh, suggestions and three of them are in the realm of what I'm looking for. <laughs> um, I, I really think that, uh, you know, I want more fantasy and science fiction by non-straight white, you know, able voices. Um, and, you know, I can't, there are already enough of those that I, I can only read those, but they aren't getting to the levels where they're household names where um, people are, you know, they know what I'm talking about when I say those kind of things. Um, I would, that's really what needs to happen is we need to get those um, authors, uh, marginalized voices to the level where, you know, I can mention it to my dad and he's heard of them. He's a very, he's very well read. Um, and, you know, that would be really great. I have read a bunch of um, books in translation recently, and I think it would be great if more people read more translated books. I did that in college a lot, and I credit um, those professors who didn't just give us um, Western English uh, speaking writers, but they gave us translations um, with the the reason that I can actually world build well. Um, you know, I I grew up reading incredibly well built um, Western science fiction and fantasy, but I was also lucky enough to read um, uh, Latin American fantasy and African fantasy in translation in particular, um, just because I lucked into professors who were like, this is where you can find it. Um, and it's so much easier to find and access those things. And I think that that, those are the kinds of that literature that comes from a totally different place is so, um, it can be so mind blowing on a line level. And especially if you're aware of, oh, this was written in a totally different language that functions very different from English and then translated into English and it's still really good and affecting. So that's already uh, like three layers of linguistic um, dynamism, like, you know, and so, I, that's what I would say is I think uh, particularly aspiring writers, um, but all writers should read more books in translation for sure. Um, there's just so much out there and you just have to look for it. Yeah, that's a this is the book I'm answer. <laughs> currently reading that is um, uh, a lot of it's Chinese short stories, uh, The Way Spring Arrives. It was published by Tor, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes, tour.com. I'm working my way through this right now. So yeah, that's a that's a book of shame for me because my friend has a book club and I was like, oh, I'll join. <laughs> and then 
didn't get didn't get to it, but <laughs> it happens. But I 110% agree with the idea of translation being important. Uh, something you know coming from living in Japan for mm-hmm. as long as I have at this point, um, I have made it an effort to read a lot of Japanese translated mm-hmm. fiction while I'm here. And something that strikes me too is not just on the line level, but also on the the plot structure level. Mm-hmm. How different writing yep. is in this country and i'm sure mm-hmm. it's different um from other places where I'm, I'm not as well read but the idea of the dynamic action that you know mm-hmm. curve that in with the west we all tend to follow is not really so much a thing <laughs> here yeah and i find as a reader it challenges me so not only as a writer should we expand but as a reader mm-hmm. as well i think it's important for people to be branching outside of that structure Mm-hmm. Uh, because I feel also as a writer, I imagine you can take techniques from that, from the different ways that people approach plot structure mm-hmm. around the world and add it to your own work as well. Yeah, yeah. that's that's the goal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Tessa, you know, and again, you are now um, your I know essentially we're all writers and it's and it's one big creative space, but now you're straddling both the digitally published and the self-published role. You, you mentioned that you, mm-hmm. you self-published uh, some books. You know, self-publishing, I think, is is I talked about, you know, what kind of books, um, you know, are, are we missing? What kind of books would we like to see? I think self-publishing has really changed the game mm-hmm. in terms of, of, of access to such a wide variety of, of yep. books that might not have reached certain audiences, but now uh, it can because authors don't have to, um, you know, go through, you know, essentially mm-hmm. the, gaunt- the gauntlet of, of a big traditional publishing house. Mm-hmm. So what's it like now to have, you know, kind of a foot in both to have self-published works? You may not have, you probably might not have envisioned that one day you'd, you know, be a New York, New York Times bestselling author you know, traditionally, and then you'd have um, self-published books as well. So how, where do you, you know, what's that like? Where do you see this, this, the whole industry going with, with the proliferation of self-published books and traditionally published, like where, where's that all going? You have a kind of a great inside track. Um, I think that, well, first of all, um, I don't really consider that I like straddle both worlds because I, I did self-publish the U.S. Asgard uh, trilogy Um, but I really hated it and I don't enjoy indie publishing because I don't like marketing and I don't like doing all of the stuff that is really important to be a successful indie author. (laughs) Um, When I self-publish something now, it's like a short story that I just throw up on my website and I'm like, Hey, everybody go read this on my website. So I am a very bad example of an indie um, indie writer. That said, I think that um, probably other than the economy and, and the pandemic is included in the economy, um, the last eight years of really strong um, pushes for diverse books and indie publishing are the three things that have actually shifted um, how traditional publishing works in the last 10 years. Um, 
and uh like because indie publishing is directly to readers i mean there's you know uh the most successful indie writers are people who have the resources to devote time and energy and money to building themselves a platform and getting their books out to readers so there's still a lot of like uh, you know, the structural hierarchy of its, you know, privileged white people in particular have those resources. So it's still really skewed, but there's still uh, a direct access to readers and not just what readers want, but readers realizing, oh, I didn't even know I wanted this. And that's something that I don't think traditional publishing has ever been good at is that, oh, I didn't know I wanted this. But you know who's really good at that is indie romance and erotica writers. Um, and they really have learned how to push the needle on finding these like these tropes and repeatable ideas that readers want and learning how to market directly to those readers and then getting bigger and better to the point where, you know, they end up on TikTok. And, um, you know, I don't think that TikTok would be what it is without indie publishing at all, um, even though, the, you know, currently the biggest TikTok books are traditionally published books. They weren't always. And even those writers come from hybrid places. So, um, you know, it was not very long ago where traditionally published writers easily could look down their noses at indie writers. And now the only ones who do that are the ones who are so successful, they don't have to care about anything or not real, not seeing the rising waters. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I hope I can always be a traditionally published writer because like I said, I don't, I'm not good at, nor do I enjoy trying to become good at indie publishing. But if you are good at that, do it. I mean, it's a great place to be. Well, obviously, you've had so much success as a Trisha Buffers author. Um, you know, there's there's no reason ups what, and what, downs, ups and downs. Yeah, I, yeah, obviously, but 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 ultimately, I, yeah. I would I would argue, obviously, that's for for you to yeah. evaluate. But I, as an outsider, mm -hmm. I would say looking you know, on the outside and say, you know, lots of success, right? Yeah. Of course, now we have, you talked about hybrid. I think that's a really important word. We have mm -hmm. so many um, instances of authors going back and forth, you know, mm -hmm. publishing, being traditionally published and saying, ah, you know what, I have this series I always want to write. I'm not sure if my editor would go for this. I'm not sure if my agent can sell this. I'm just yeah. going to self-publish it and, right. you know, and, and as well. Any of authors that uh, make the transition, you know, mm -hmm. we had the pleasure of having uh, Travis Baldry uh, on on the show, right? New York, another New York mm -hmm. Times bestselling author, published *Legends and Lattes*, *Cozy Fantasy*, uh -huh. yeah. you know, self-published, blew up because of that, got a book deal, you know, mm -hmm. New York Times bestselling author. Like, so there, there's so much more of that mixing and matching. Will yeah. White, um, you know, strict strict self-pub, New York mm -hmm. Times bestselling author, you know, uh, you know the industry yeah. is really changing with, with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really good friends with Sierra Simone who writes romance, indie yeah. romance and erotica. And um, she has a deal uh, where I think it's with Sourcebooks. Um, they are repackaging some of her backlist 
um, and publishing them in like paperback. And then with the rest of that series, Sierra is indie publishing the eBooks, but they are still publishing the paperbacks. And so it's like directly hybridized with a traditional publisher. So like theoretically everybody wins kind of thing. Cause she doesn't have to deal with the material and doing those, um, uh, the the paperbacks like the hard copies kind of thing um but yeah like i then there are more and more deals like that i mean that would be smart for traditional publishers to try to get mm -hmm. you know get, yeah. dip their fingers in there because i find i'm hearing a lot of people like even with spiffo the self-published fantasy uh, -huh. uh bog off the winners of those can often can be approached, you know, by, by traditional publishing. Mm -hmm. And I've heard some people discuss that almost as poaching, <laughs> like <laughs> whoever makes it to the top, but I'm very glad to hear that there's exploration of, you know, a hybrid way mm -hmm. to approach this, that, that really gives me a lot of hope for bridging between the two. Yeah. Cause you know, we often say uh, on this show that there's there's room for everyone. Books are not yes. a finite resource. It really is. There's if there's readers, which there are, then there's room mm -hmm. for your your story. So it's nice to see kind of the rising tide. Yeah. Together. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask Tessa, you may not be able to disclose everything, but can you tell us anything about any new projects you're working on or what might do you have in the hopper kind of thing? Um I uh, Justina and I just turned in the second draft of the sequel to Chaos and Flame. That comes out next May, I believe. Um, we also just turned in another co-written Star Wars. Um, it's for phase three of the High Republic. I'm currently writing another solo Star Wars, and this is an adult one. I'm really excited to write an adult Star Wars book. It's called Temptation of the Force, uh, and it comes out sometime in 2024. Um, but I'm still writing Sounds that. Spicy. So yeah, I know. Um, and I am on submission with uh, an, a new adult fantasy that I hope sells, but who knows in this in this economy. <laughs> um, so yeah, right now, everything I have coming out is Star Wars and then Chaos and Flame. And I'm hoping to uh, sell some other stuff that is all secret because it's still on submission and everything. So working on my own um, standalone YA fantasy again. But yeah, I think that's everything. I have that's a lot. Yeah, I know. I know. So that's a lot of projects in the works. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's really the the Star Wars, the timeline is so fast. Usually when I am working on a book, it's not gonna come out for like two or three years. Um, but with Star Wars, I'm literally writing a book that's gonna come out next year. And that is part of the Star Wars pressure. <laughs> But yeah, that also keeps everything very like in time, like in real time and what people are excited about. That's what we're given. So. Well, it's certainly going to make you quite the prolific author and looking back, you know, your body of work over a, you know, a five, 10 year span yeah. going forward is going to be 
pretty extensive. So it is. I, I'm going to need a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to put it, trying to put <laughs> extra, extra, extra pressure on you. But, you know, acquiring minds want to know. I know it may be a no go, and you may have, you know, you may have done with that. But is there any possibility you might ever come back <laughs> to, to Innisfil? I know it's a duology, and, you know, it's amazing. It stands on own, but is there any possibility you might do something? I would I would love to. Um, those books lived in my head for a long time before I wrote them. And so it would need to be the right, the right play and the right time. Um, I'd love to, though. I'm very open to the universe and publishing presenting me with the opportunity to write a third Lear in a Slear book. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Purely a selfish question. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, if I had to do it right now, I would probably do this is going to be a ridiculous answer. But unsurprisingly, of the two plays I would pick, one of them would be Twelfth Night. And the other one, brace yourself, would be Titus. Titus? Wow. Yes. Okay. 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 I, okay. So I thought Titus Andronicus for sure. Uh -huh. I thought yeah. you might have said Othello. I wasn't sure you're going to go that route, yeah. but um, you know, I. Oh, wow, that's yeah. exciting. Could that's be. Exciting. But yeah. That's exciting. Titus. That's exciting. That, that, wow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I'm there for it. I'm sign me up. <laughs> I've been I'm a real fan it. of Aaron. Um, the character Aaron and Titus Andronicus since the first time I saw, I think I saw that play before I read it, which is probably a good thing. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have this old, really completely beat up covers falling off uh, Shakespeare. What for? It's, it's from my mom gave it to me. I'm mm -hmm. 54 and I got it like in elementary school. So I don't, this, this is a 40. The, the book itself is probably about seven years old, but the, you know, I've had it for about yeah. seven years, yeah. and and it is, I refuse to get rid of it. Like it's literally <laughs> falling apart. The glue is coming. Like the pages are unglued, and but it's just, it's just dear to me. So uh, because you know, I I love Shakespeare, and yeah. it's just something near to my heart. And I grew like you. I grew up, um, you know, really loving. Uh, his work and mm -hmm. and like you, you know, as you get older and you understand different things, having problems with with certain things. But like mm -hmm. you said, um, the Bard was in some ways very much ahead of his time um, yeah. for for what he wrote. And you know, and I I always say that he's also in some ways he's one of the not original, but he's one of the earlier um, uh, historical fiction writers and or historical fantasy writers mm -hmm. that you can find out there. And, <laughs> yeah. and he's good. He's yeah. good. So, yeah. um, you know, so, so again, I, I am excited to hear that you might potentially. I'd love to. Yeah. I'd absolutely love to. Well, the time always goes so fast. We are already over an hour here, but oh, I yeah. hope, uh, you don't mind indulging me with one question that is not directly book related, but it's something okay. that you have on your website and something you also uh, mentioned in your intro, which is that you've been lucky to live around the world, even though now mm -hmm. you've kind of settled uh, in Kansas for the moment. But I'm just curious as someone else who loves travel and, and seeing the world, do you have a favorite place that you've been? And has that place inspired any of your works? Um, gosh, I 
I'm one of those lucky people where I really love the landscape where I am at the moment. And so when it comes to like actual land, I just, I love everything because if I'm on the prairie, I love the prairie. If I'm by the ocean, it's the ocean. If it's mountain, it's mountains. But when it comes to actual places, my two favorite cities, um, like outside of America, I, I love so many cities in America. Um, I would say uh, Budapest, which was a total surprise for me. My wife and I, when we were backpacking as like 20 year olds, um, we were, we had like one afternoon in Budapest because we were waiting for a train uh, to go somewhere else. And we were just like, oh my God, the city's so cool. We ended up staying there for three days. Just, we had done no research on the city. So we really just wandered around the city and we found some of the most incredible, weird stuff in that city. Um, and I just, I haven't been back there since 2000. It was... It was 2001, the summer of 2001 is when we were there for only three days, but it is just etched into my memory as like every, the perfect travel experience where you're young and, you know, we had $2 a day and um, it was just still so great. And we ex explored so much and discovered so much. And then my other favorite city is uh, Kyoto um, in Japan. I, uh, I was born in Okinawa um, and I have uh, no memories of that because I was an infant, um, but I have always had a lot of pictures um, of what it was like. I was my parents' first kid. And so, you know, they were youths also, and they dragged me all across those islands and have all, I have pictures of me in a variety of places in Kyoto. And um, then I lived uh, just south of Tokyo for three years when I was a teenager, um, which was absolutely formative for all the reasons I'm sure you can imagine. Um, and uh, Kyoto, though, I've been back to and, you know, got to go revisit those places and recreate the pictures from when I was a tiny little baby um, with my dad. And I just, I love the feel of that city. Uh, and I, one of the, my favorite things about Japan is how similar, like in America, you can't throw a rock without hitting a church. Well, it's the same in Japan, only they're Shinto and Buddhist shrines. And um, they're just the, the, it's so the same and so different on like a, really cool world building way, <laughs> the way that religion like weaves into the history of the cities and how they were built and where things were allowed to be built and all that kind of stuff. And then there's just so much poetry in, in Japan in general, but also in Kyoto. And I, I really love that like being on a bus and like driving past and things like oh I think that's a that's a poem <laughs> just <laughs> sitting there on the side of the road those kind of things so yeah my favorite cities I would need to go back to Budapest which I'd love to do before I could really let it specifically influence me um the experience of being um, you know, a, a stranger in a city and accidentally discovering it, that sense 
uh, has definitely permeated a lot of my work. Um, I, I don't think I could divorce Japan and the influence it's had on me from my writing because being in Japan as a teenager and coming into, like, I was basically radicalized in Japan because of the things that were going on politically in the 90s in Japan um, made it really fraught. And they, uh, the the Japanese people were really starting to fight back with protests about the American occupation of their island. And so I was there as a teenager and experienced a lot of... Um, I fraught moments where I was like, oh my God, are we the bad guys? <laughs> oh, wow. We, we are the bad guys. Um, and that just has influenced my whole life and how I feel about, uh, you know, international politics and globalization and all these things. Um, but I did let the aesthetics of what I love about Japan really creep into my work on Nightshine and Moondark Smile in particular. Um, there's a lot about the way that I wrote the demons and spirits and shrines and magic. Um, and it's also, it takes place in a, like a temperate rainforest, which part of Japan is. So yeah, with volcanoes. That's such a beautiful answer. I haven't been to Budapest Thanks. myself, but but you make me want to go there. Yeah. It was it's a very um, cool city. At least it was in 2001. I assume it's still pretty great. <laughs> we can safely assume. Yeah. Uh, I also just wanted to apologize to those who uh, left a chat earlier. I was engaged too engaged in the conversation. I didn't put them up, but we just had a couple people stop by. So, mm -hmm. hi. I don't know if you're still here, but thank you. Thank you so much for stopping by. And Derek is also here. All right. So as I mentioned, though, it, it, this goes so fast. So I don't yeah. want to take too much more sure. of your time. Uh, before we go, though, if people want to find you and your work and look for future updates, where can they find you? Where can they um, you? Twitter uh, is where I am the most often, though I will warn you, 80% of my Twitter is my current fandom, which is Chinese web novels. So there's a lot of uh, fan art and like inside jokes on my Twitter, but I do also post about my books there. Um, and my Instagram, they're both uh, at Tessa Gratton. Um, and then the best place is my website, really, tessagratton.com. I update that and you can sign up for my newsletter on my website. Um, so that is supposed to be monthly, but it's really every other month-ish. Um, but that'll come directly to your inbox if you sign up for my newsletter. So, yeah. Wonderful. And uh, for PL, where can people find you if they would like to, to locate you in the future? Uh, oftentimes beside Taylor and Steve for page chewing, um, which, you know, where we have wonderful guests like Tessa. Um, for the books, it's www.plstore.com. That's the website. Social media preferred platform. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, but Twitter is where I, I hang out the most. That's where you can find me, at plstorewrites. Um, and of course, again, I am a member of the, the Tessa Gratton fan club. So uh, I can't wait to read um, more, much more of, of Tessa's work. So, Thank you. 
Uh, and if you have somehow stumbled upon this video and you don't know who I am, my name is Taylor and my channel is Made Between the Pages. That's what, uh, what you're on right now. And this is the best place to find me. All of my links to my Twitter and all of that are down below in the description. So once again, thank you so much for joining us, Tessa. This is a delightful conversation and I feel like you, you've given me so much to think about and marinate on. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad. Yeah, it was really fun. Thank you. I'm always happy to talk on and on and on about Shakespeare and Japan in particular. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, clearly we're in the right place then because you've yep. got a host for yep. each of those. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much to everyone who stopped by in the chat and everyone who's watching this after. Uh, we really appreciate your engagement. You're, you are the people who make page doing what it is. Uh, so, uh, but for today, I think we're going to head out and we'll see you guys on the next episode. See you.